0: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. What is deep time? If we learn how our universe works, can that guide us in living our own lives? Welcome to part one of my two conversations with Jennifer Morgan. Jennifer Morgan is a writer and storyteller whose illustrated books on the universe's evolutionary story are used in classrooms around the world. She's founder and director of the Deep Time Journey Network, where people worldwide connect and explore how a new cosmology, a new science-based story of where we come from, helps us to see life in new ways and to act wisely within it. Jennifer Morgan has been thinking about this stuff her whole life. She grew up around cool people like her grandmother, the photographer Barbara Morgan, and her good buddy Joseph Campbell. We talk about how we and the stars are on the same kind of journey, how some people do their best work under house arrest, and how the universe invites us to embrace the chaos. Because yes, chaos is how the universe rolls. You can find links to stuff we talk about on the website. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on the Big Chew Podcast. Here's Jennifer. Hello. Hello. So great to be here with you, Maria. Thanks, Jennifer. So I'd like to ask you first, since you are the founder of the Deep Time Journey Network, how you would describe... Deep time. And for those of you who have never heard the term deep time, hang on just a second because you're
1: soaking in it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, geologists actually were the first ones to come up with this term deep time um, when they discovered fossils of fish up in mountains and figured out that Earth is much, much older than we ever thought it was. So Earth is not just thousands of years old, but it is millions and even billions of years old. So this idea that we have to take on a much bigger scale of time in our understanding of the earth, our understanding of the universe, and our understanding of ourselves. So that's the origin of the term. Um, Now we're using it on the network in this sense, but also in another sense, which has to do with um, like another step, I would say, in terms of human identity. And that is seeing ourselves inside of this much, much bigger story. And so we're not just looking at the story of the universe as an objective story that's somehow separate from ourselves, which is, a you know, there's a lot to be said for studying it in that way. But looking at it in another way, um, which has to do with um, the subjectivity, meaning the interiority of ourselves with respect to how we see who we are and our sense of identity. So inside of this way of looking at it, um, seeing our identity inside of a universe that uh, came into being 14 billion years ago and has been transforming ever since and is continuing to transform it transformed into everything that we know. And we're part of that transformation, right? We are actually,
0: we're involved in it. It's not just something that's happening outside of our
1: sphere. Exactly. So that's why we call it deep time journey in the sense that it's, it's not only a narrative. Yes, it's a narrative, but it's also a journey in the sense that we are part of this journey of transformation. So our decisions are really important because we're co-creating the future. And how conscious are we of the impact of what we're doing?
0: I would say that the default answer is not very.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we've got a big job to do in terms of raising awareness
0: so who belongs to this network? And we will have a link to the network in the show notes, so that you can explore it yourself because it's it's great stuff from all different places. But tell us who's who's on this network,
1: right? Um, a lot of different kinds of people. Uh, we've got teachers, artists, musicians, scientists, clergy. All of these people are looking at this bigger context and understanding. And then situating everything they're doing inside of that context. A large portion of our members are teachers, uh, teachers throughout the world. We now have uh, people in well over 20 countries. Wow. And uh, um, as far as what we're doing, um, we have people come on and they form groups. Uh, well, first of all, they you know put a profile up. And then they form groups and then they can put resources up that they discover and really like and want to share with others, which is just so great because, you know, other people can come on and find out how people are using those resources. And then most recently, we started professional development for teachers, right? Uh, for teachers of ages zero to 18. The, the Montessori School
0: people are involved, aren't they? What is now? Since I never had kids, um, I'm I'm not really keyed into the different kinds of early education. But it sounds as if Maria Montessori kind of started with
1: cosmic education early on, didn't she? Absolutely. Yeah. When she uh, later in life, this is well after she developed the curriculum for early childhood. Uh, she went to India at the invitation of the Theosophical Society. And while she was there, uh, World War II broke out. She was a citizen of Italy. India was under British occupation. They, they put her and her son under house arrest. Whoa. And that turned out to be a really good thing, ironically. <laughs> uh, because that is when she developed the cosmic education curriculum for the elementary level while she was in India, you know, drawing on the threads of Indian philosophy, her own background as a doctor, one of the first women doctors in Italy. So she comes at it very much with the eyes of a scientist, but also with the eyes of a mystic. So she was able to put together those two, mystic and scientist. Mm-hmm in creating this uh, curriculum. As a scientist, she observed that the child, upon entering the elementary years, let's say six, age seven, begins to ask the questions, you know, where did I come from? Where does everything come from? Where am I going? And so she concluded that's the time to tell them the story of the universe in an age-appropriate way such that they have this bigger framework and then going forward, like in steps, like a spiral, it spirals up with each level. um, They can learn the story in in increasing complexity. But at the same time, it's not, again, it's not just about an objective narrative. It's about who are we inside of it. Mm -hmm. And the term that she used was uh, cosmic task that everything has a cosmic task. It has a role that it's playing inside of the whole. And education— one of the roles of education is to help nurture an understanding of that inside of each student. It's something that they discover. The teacher's job is to create an environment in which they can discover it through the environment, through the stories, through key learning experiences.
0: So you're also involved with the Big History Project. Can you explain what, what that group
1: does? Absolutely. So Big History um, is, was started by David Christian, uh, a scholar. There are numerous other scholars who many of whom were sort of independently uh, coming to this idea that in order to understand anything, you know, we have to understand everything because each thing doesn't make sense unless you see it inside the whole. And so they began to look at this grand narrative of the universe as an objective story using a scientific method of discovery and then piecing the whole narrative together. Um, such that you see the human story inside of this bigger story. So it is being taught at uh, the you know college level and it's also being now taught at the secondary level. Uh, Bill Gates uh, discovered it. He watched some of David Christian's lectures while he was on his treadmill, I believe <laughs> and- <laughs> Uh, so he put a lot of money into it and into bringing it to the secondary level. So what we're really excited about on the network is the intersection between Montessori cosmic education and big history, mm-hmm. because at the secondary level um, can like map them right on top of each other. It's, it's just unbelievable. And so we're connecting the dots. You know, that's one of the main purposes of the network is to connect the dots between all these different curricula that have been emerging independently. And often groups don't know about what other groups are doing. So... Uh, we're trying to create this place where, you know, people don't have to keep inventing a wheel over and over and over again, because we've already made it. (laughs) When did this
0: start for you? Now, you were talking about Maria Montessori realizing that at six or seven, kids start asking questions. And that's about when your son started asking questions. And you kind of took the bit and ran with it. Um, But where did you first get this, get this inkling of the deep time story and also the desire to do something about it?
1: Right, right. Well, I took a program, an earth literacy program at Genesis Farm. I did that one. Oh, uh, wh- what year did you do it, Maria?
0: Oh, I think I was there in, oh God, I don't know, early 2000s. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is uh, Genesis Farm is in Blairstown, New Jersey, and I think, are they kind of on hold now in terms of what programs they're doing? Yes,
1: yes. Unfortunately, they're not offering that Earth literacy program right now. But they did for years,
0: and you would spend like two weeks learning about the geology of where you came from and learning about the science of the the universe and the ethical issues. It's just a
1: fantastic experience. So anyway, back to you. Yeah, so I I did that program in 1997, Mm -hmm. and I was completely turned on. And I was so excited about it that I would go home and teach my son everything I was learning. And I would tell him bedtime stories. So we would light a candle and I would tell him these stories about Mm -hmm. stars being born and stars living and dying just like we do. And I could see that he was really fascinated, which kind of surprised me. I didn't expect it. So I got the idea to start writing a book for children, taking the story and and adapting it for children. Well, my son just so happened to be at the Princeton Montessori School. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea at that point about cosmic education. But one day, I brought in my little manuscript, and I asked his teacher if she would read it and tell me what she thought about it. Because mainly what I wanted to know was, was my kid weird, or was this something that she thought would be of interest to other kids? (laughs) So I got it back with this little note on the bottom that said, fits right in with Montessori cosmic education. And I still remember the words just like burning a hole through my brain and going, what the heck is that?
0: And your son never said when you were telling me these stories, oh, yeah, we learned that in school or you didn't really know that this was part of what they were doing. Well, what
1: was funny is that a week uh, after I gave her the manuscript, or let me say this, when, when she gave the manuscript back to me. She said, um, we'd love to have you come and watch what we do in the classroom next week Mm -hmm. when we teach the story. And so, you know, I mean, talk about synchronicity,
0: right? You know,
1: I mean, so he had not been exposed to it yet. Oh, he was six. He was six at the time. Yeah, And Mm -hmm. it was in the next week when he was going to hearing it in his classroom. And so, and his teacher invited me to come and sit in. And this was one week after she had read my manuscript. So I did, I did that. I went and sat in, uh, to, to see how she told the story. And I was just so impressed and blown away. And then I also knew that my story was bringing something a little a little new and different too. And uh, but what I had no idea about was <laughs> the passion with which Montessori teachers would, you know embrace my books, um, which has been unbelievable. I mean, my books are pretty much used, you know, around the world in elementary Montessori elementary classrooms and middle school, and high school. Um, so, so okay, so after that, that's when I, that well, that was a huge confirmation that, yes, mm-hmm. this story is appropriate for elementary level. You know, go ahead, keep writing, find a publisher, you know, <laughs> all of that. It, but it, And then, at that point, was when I realized, you know, I really want to check in on the science Mm -hmm. And make sure that it is absolutely the most rigorous. And since I live in Princeton, New Jersey, I had the good fortune of being able to take five courses at uh, Princeton University, two in cosmology, um, one in evolutionary biology, another in mammal evolution, and another in anthropology. Um, We're talking about, you know, over a very extended period here. Mm -hmm. And work with a whole bunch of scientists uh, to get, you know, make sure I had the science uh, really good. And so, yeah, so, you know, step by step up toward finding a publisher and then finding Dana Lynn Anderson. The illustrator, right? Yes,
0: yes. These are fantastic books, I just want to say. And um, they're called, there are three of them, right? It's a trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one is Born with a Bang, then From Lava to Life, and then Mammals Who Morph. And they're brilliantly written and illustrated. And I have given these books to my nieces, to the little kids of friends. And when I was writing about the universe story when I was in grad school, I, I remember hearing from another writer, you know, sometimes when you really need to know the basics of something, get a kid's book. <laughs> and I, I, st- I have your books and I referred back to them. Uh, because they were so beautifully laid out, uh, showing you the the sequence of events and the different challenges and illustrating them so beautifully. They really what a contribution that you you made with those books. They're really terrific. Oh, thank you, Maria. No, you're welcome, Jennifer. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say your thinking was before you started learning this? I mean, obviously to go to Genesis Farm and sign up for their, earth literacy course. You had to have had an interest in it. And I know you were the head of the New Jersey Organic Farming Association, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. So you were oriented toward being a good earthling. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what what had your kind of worldview been before that, before you started really taking on this, this broader perspective?
1: Well, you know, as a child, um, my grandmother, Barbara Morgan, a uh, photographer of dance, uh, most famous for her images of Martha Graham. She took those pictures? She did.
0: Whoa. Yes. The one where she's kind of in a dress and she's kind
1: of yep. leaning back. That's the one. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> sitting at her knee as a child and the fact that she was very close friends with Joseph Campbell. Oh, um, yes. So he would be over at the house and I would hear them talking and she would take me to his lectures. This whole idea of templates,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: that there, there's a structure underneath the different forms Um, with respect to stories, like our mythological stories. um, That's that's an idea that was always there just because I, you know, heard about it so much Mm -hmm. when I was a child. What I didn't have, and which I don't think we've had as a culture until very recently, is the idea that those structures those human structures are also structures in the universe as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that leap from the human structures to the, the structures inside the physical universe um, that really blew my mind.
0: Can you give an example of what those structures are that you're talking about?
1: Well, I would say, okay, so let's say, you know, in the hero's journey, right? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, um, you know, the three steps, right? There's the departure, there's the initiation, and there's the return. And what basically happens in those three phases is, you know, the first one, you're living life, and then, and then you have to leave your normal life. <laughs> you have to leave that. So you have to sort of be broken down. You have to be... You, you, you can't do the usual routine anymore. Things have to break down. This, this mm-hmm. is the destruction part. And then the initiation happens, which is where these new p- partnerships are formed. Formed and new identities begin to emerge. And then the return, which is where the hero comes back to society, to the whole, but now they're not the same person anymore. They are, they're a different person because now they've taken on their uh, role of contribution to the whole and they have... Um, sort of individuated, you know, into the person they're meant to be. Mm-hmm. So if you, so it's like a new threshold level that they reach um, on that return. But if you look at the universe as a whole, um, let's just take the example of stars. So we had, when the universe was first, you know, back about uh, 500 million years old, when the first stars the very first stars began to appear and those were primary stars so they had hydrogen and a little bit of helium not much and then inside of the stars those elements are fused together um, into many many new elements so if you can think of it like there was this form, you know, a, the, you know, the star with just the the hydrogen, a little bit of healing. And then this process of creating the new elements is um, sort of this initiation phase, if you will. And It happens through a lot uh, of heat and stress, right? Exactly. And it's through breakdown. I mean, there's huge turmoil and chaos. And then the elements float through space, that same dust, the stuff that was broken apart. Mm-hmm. So a whole new threshold level is reached. Now, um, which, and for anybody who studies big history, um, it's all about the threshold levels that the universe goes through. So you could look at each one of those threshold levels as periods of, you know, breakdown, to translate into the universe story, you know, breakdown, reorganization, and then a new threshold level. So that, you know, seeing that was just, I just can't tell you how exciting it was. Uh, (laughs) You know, I don't know, something just really broke through for me. And it wasn't only the intellectual awareness, it was the um, uh, carrying out the rituals. So at Genesis Farm, there were the rituals that we did, like the cosmic walk, which I'm sure you probably did, and the meditation trail. Um, and then the experiences of being on the land. So the combination of the scientific rigor with the more meditative side, you know, inner transformation stuff, you know, putting that all together, I just think that changes everything.
0: So how does, that, how does that affect you personally? You've been, first of all, what do
1: you call this story? Uh, what do I call this story? Um, yeah. Well, I, I like the term that uh, Thomas Berry and Brian Swim have been using, which is the story of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, the cosmic education, I certainly use that a lot. And I also use deep time story, which... I like that a lot. In fact, that's the title of the um, professional development program that I'm giving on the network in, you know, how to do storytelling. I'm working on on that right now, actually. So uh, the term deep time story has. To me, it it hints at the subjectivity, um, like how it how it impacts us personally, how it how it creates a shift um, in our sense of self. Uh, so, so I like that term a whole lot. Uh, but your other question was, oh, what does it do for me personally? Was that your question? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing um, among many is um, you come into a different relationship with chaos. <laughs>
0: As I look around my office, that is a comfort.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think most of us have it wired up that chaos is a really bad thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to be avoided at all costs. But the more you study the story of the universe and really sit with it, um, like not trying to change it, but just being with it, um, then you, you come to a different way of being with it, which is, you know what? This is actually normal. It's not bad. It's how the universe does its thing. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you the number of people who have, you know, heard my stories, read my books, who say things like, wow, it's such a relief. I find it so peaceful knowing that the universe is chaotic. I I can't tell you the number of people who've said that in some form or another. It's like, you know, we spend so much energy on trying to fight
0: chaos so where do you think that came from, that everything... I know my mother always used to say, order is the first rule of heaven. <laughs> and and then we'd say, well, Mom, I think the first rule of heaven is you have to be dead to go there. So <laughs> pardon me if I don't pick up my room. But where, where where do you think that comes from? Well,
1: I think it's natural to want to control your environment such that it's not dangerous. I think that's natural. You know, if you look at any of the nature shows, which I happen to be an addict of, you know, <laughs> give me, give me Re- Richard Attenborough. Mm. He's, he is my, <laughs> I love him. I know. <laughs> he is my relaxation at the end of the day. Um, And you see all the animals are, uh, you know, avoiding, obviously, situations where they would be in danger. And so if chaotic situations uh, feel dangerous, I mean, it's natural to want to avoid. On the other hand, if you look at all those stories Uh, the nature shows I'm talking about Mm -hmm. um, and also the, you know, the larger story of the universe, there's always the piece where the animal has to go through, has to run this gauntlet of danger and make it to the other side. You know, whether it's the little baby turtle that hatches out of its shell and it has to make it down to the ocean before getting, grabbed by a bird, right? you know, um, or the, you know, the little birds that hatch way up on the, you know, the sides of mountains and they have to, you know, they have to jump off the cliff, you know, and then get to the water before the fox nabs them. You know, it's just countless, countless stories of that. So yes, we want to avoid being eaten, on the other hand, there's this recognition you know within nature that we have to go through the chaos. You know, we got to mm-hmm. do it to get to the next level.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think the more you look at the story of the universe and see the how destruction and creation go hand in hand, there is just no way you can't have the destruction. Uh, Or you can't have, I'm sorry, you can't have the creation without the destruction.
0: Right.
1: Um, And so it's coming to accepting it. Like, you know, this, we can accept it. We don't have to like it. You know, Mm -hmm. that's another thing. We don't, we do not have to like it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we do have to accept it and not treat it like something's wrong. Because actually there's nothing wrong. Well, it's like, for example,
0: the tsunami that happened a number of years ago. And there's uh, always that tendency to think, oh, why did this have to happen and all these poor people and everything? But it happens because that's what the ocean floor does exactly. in order to do its thing thing and in order for all the other systems to do their things all these things happen and if you happen to be near the water when that's going on obviously you're going to be in a vulnerable position but you know it's like the mafia says it's nothing personal it's just business (laughs) come on you're new jersey you know what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) when you're talking about the context that the universe story can give you. One thing that keeps coming to my mind, looking at the, uh, I hate to talk about the election, and I'm only going to do it peripherally, but people who are responding so, with so much fear about a diverse population, people who are different, people who are different from what they, what other people expected Mm -hmm. when you learn that diversity is something the universe does that it is constantly creating forms and um, that this is something that is is a natural impulse right that this is something you know that we're all unified on a much much deeper level, and it's great if people have their own cultures, and that's wonderful, and their own languages, and all those things are important. But that's not necessarily a threat to anybody, Absolutely. Um, or it doesn't have to be. I think if it's if it's understood, there seem to be a lot of
1: a lot of lessons like that. The governing themes that uh, Thomas Berry identified um, are differentiation interiority, and communion. So within each of these, there's there's a tendency toward increasing each of them. So let's say, take differentiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, going forward in the story, there's an increase in differentiation. So many more different kinds of forms. Mm-hmm. And then the interiority and increasing interiority or increasing subjectivity, increasing self-determination or consciousness or sentience. So that's increasing as we go forward. And then communion, this interconnection, the complexity of our interconnectedness uh, keeps increasing. So, you know, we can see how that's happening, you know, in our world in every single way. Um, and, you know, to go another step, um, we can look at, you know, like what's wrong? What's what's right? You know, what does what does sin may, mean inside of, of these governing themes? And so Tony Nash, who she's one of the cool nuns, <laughs> um, she's <laughs> is publishing um, her PhD dissertation, which is on this very subject, which is how do you look at morality, you know, inside of the unfolding of the universe? And one way is if you're trying to reverse that tendency that the universe has within it, then that's that's not good. So let's take differentiation. In agriculture, if we tend toward monoculture, which is completely at odds with the, the way the universe works. The, the un-
0: great American lawn, among
1: other things. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, we all know the ramifications of what's, you know what's been happening mm. with monoculture just does not work mm. without huge inputs that are extremely destructive you know, how, how do we look at our behavior? How do we assess what's right and what's wrong? What, what does it mean to be in mm-hmm. right action? Because, you know, cosmology has these two pieces to it. One is, you know, to understand our origin and be connected to our origin. And the other is how do we behave? Like, you know, how does it actually look on the ground in terms mm-hmm. of our behavior? So really, you know, understanding, like, how does the universe work? How do I come into attunement with that? Rather, rather than how can I control the environment and mold it to my way? Um, that's a completely opposite approach from what a universe story sensitive approach would be, which is to understand what we're part of, understand how the universe works understand how can we be co-creators with the larger creative power which is the universe so
0: and and the people who are members of the deep time journey network how do how do they run along the the religious lines do you think
1: oh i think it runs mm-hmm. the full gamut <clears throat> you know from Many people who aren't really that tuned in to, or, you know, are just Mm -hmm. not interested in uh, the religious or spiritual dimensions. Um, And then those who really are. Uh, But, you know, we have Mm -hmm. clergy on there. Uh, We have uh, Catholic, Mm -hmm. a lot of Catholic sisters. But they're the cool ones. um, Who (laughs) have, the cool ones, yes. These are the cool ones. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we yes, specialize they are cool. in cool <laughs> just, they really truly are some of the coolest people you can meet and they're so much fun to hang out with you know yes they're just a blast i never yeah. thought i would be hanging out with nuns but uh they really are fun people and and so curious and so interesting and just so grounded
1: they're great Mm-hmm. There is so much searching going on, Mm -hmm. and you know this goes back to what Thomas Berry said when he said in his 1978 landmark essay titled "The New Story" that we are between stories. The old ones don't work anymore, and we haven't yet come up with new stories. Right, and and so we're right in that in, in between time. Right. And the chaos. So the, exactly. Exactly. This is the breakdown of our stories. We're right in that. I mean, all you have to do is look at what's happening in the churches, the way they're, the numbers are diminishing. Right. You know, churches are closing up everywhere. Um, and it's directly related to that. The story has to be compelling and it has to fit with, logically fit with everything that we know, you know, when, when those conditions aren't satisfied, then the stories break down. And that's where we are.
0: Yeah. Like I heard a guy on the radio, it was some, it was on a Sunday and I was in the car. It was some kind of old time religion broadcast. And the guy was talking about sin. He kept talking about sin. And he was saying that because of sin, people don't live to be 900 years old anymore that they, you know, because sin just takes over their bodies and that's why we don't live to be 900 years old. And I kept thinking to myself, has anyone found any 900 year old hominin fossils? I, I just don't, <laughs> you think your teeth would wear down pretty well by then. Um, it was just so, this man was just so convinced that Mm -hmm. all these ideas were true when they flew in the face of everything we know, scientifically, logically. Knowing what you know about the universe story and that people don't have a story that can guide them in life or that can tell them who they are. What, say one or two things would you most like them to know that, that could start them off on the kind of journey that you've taken?
1: Learn the story. Keep I keep coming back to that. Is um, immerse yourself in the bigger story, and you know you don't have to read. In fact, just read my books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's true I'm though. Not, I'm I'm. I'm honest.
1: not kidding. <laughs> totally. Um, um. You know, any child that reads the whole series is going to be so well set up for life, in terms of not only, you know, gaining a large framework for all the information that they're going to receive going forward, but also a a sense of personal identity. If you can think of it this way, that our inner thoughts, our inner poles, you know, we are the universe being ourselves. So I'm the universe being Jennifer, you're the universe being Maria. And these thoughts that keep rising up, you know, inside of each of us, where do they come from? It's all part of the universe. You know, it's all inside the whole. So we need to listen to that, you know, what's going on interiorly and to know the bigger context that we live inside of. And those those two things coming together are what's going to give us um, a sense of direction.
0: I'm so jealous that you knew Joseph Campbell as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you know, I mean, did you have a sense when you were a little kid that he was really cool? No.
1: No. I I I knew he was cool, but I didn't know he was that cool. When when did you realize that he was that cool? Well, I think I remember remember the Bill Moyers Yeah. series yeah. when I watched that, that's when I really knew. <laughs>
0: You know, he changed my life when I was about, I guess I was about 16, 17 years old. And I had bought this little book. It wasn't even one of his better known ones. And I don't know why they had this book at the little drugstore down in Peapack, but um, it was Myths to Live By. Mm-hmm. And I, know that book. Yeah. I had always enjoyed mythology, and I thought it was going to be like Greek mythology or something, and I started reading this, and I remember it was in the summer, and I was on one of those uh, kind of webbed lawn chairs, you know, and I'm reading this, and I'm sure I didn't get a lot of it, because I was, you know, young and clueless. I read that thing, I think, in one sitting, and I don't know how that was possible, given that my mother was always forcing us to work, but (laughs) I got up from that lawn chair and I thought, show's over. And because, you know, I had been this devout, guilt-stricken Catholic girl. <laughs> and then he explained all of this, that this is a pattern that humans, you know, this kind of story. And and I just thought, this is incredible. And it, that was the first I really started to catch on, I think, to the... Um, I don't know. The man behind the curtain.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's well said.
0: A a really pivotal moment. I'll never forget it, and I'll always be grateful for it. Anyway, thank you so much, Jennifer. Boy, you are just a wise woman. You're up there with the cool nuns, man. (laughs) (laughs) You've had this, this big picture for a long time, and... It's so interesting because not only do you have the p- big picture, but you're executing, bringing that idea to other people in a lot of different ways, and I, I really admire that, and, and I, think you've, I think you've got a really cool cosmic task. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Jennifer Morgan, and thank you for listening. On our website, you can find links to the stuff we talk about, and you can leave comments. Go to www.meetyourmyth.com and click on podcast. You can subscribe to the Big Chew podcast on iTunes, and you can help us out a lot by reviewing the Big Chew on iTunes, because algorithm. The Big Chew podcast comes out every two weeks on the full moon and the new moon, because I never know what day it is. Bye for now.